Em, I was thinking of you the other day while I was whitening my teeth. Oh, thanks. Remember a few weeks ago when you had to take the day off because you had whitened and your mouth was in so much pain? Please don't remind me. Not only did my teeth feel awful, I really didn't see that much of a difference in the whiteness. Yeah, that's why when I was using my new Brighton system, I thought of you. How sweet. Was it because your teeth hurt too? The complete opposite, actually. Brighton was super easy to use. I simply put some of the whitening gel on my teeth and placed the mouthpiece for 15 minutes. When I was done, not only did the gel not cause that whitening pain, I saw results immediately. Josh even noticed. So you got pain-free, immediate results? Not only that, but I can use it whenever my teeth need a little sprucing up. Okay, how do I get this in my life? Easy. Just go to Brighton, that's B-R-Y-T-N, smile.com, and pick your kit. And when you use promo code RAIN25, you'll get a whopping 25% off of your order. Brighton, the best way to whiten. If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. love and appreciate all of our Patreon supporters, and if you would like to hear your name called out, you can have that for only $10 a month visiting patreon.com and looking up Murder in the Rain, just like these fine people did. Rachel L. from St. Peter's, Missouri. Kirsten S. from Milwaukee, Oregon. Deanna C. from St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Melanie M. from Vancouver, Washington. Jason J. from Gresham, Oregon. Tanya from Morven, Australia. And Nicole K. from Seattle, Washington. Go... Seahawks? Seahawks. Shit. We love sports. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode contains references to child sex abuse, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. There have been some very interesting and surprising ways serial killers have been caught. Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, murdered 10 people between the years of 1974 and 1991. He left the city of Wichita, Kansas, anxious with fear as they wondered what kind of monster would commit the heinous crimes of binding, torturing, and strangling to death people of all ages, including a victim as young as nine. He enjoyed what he did, and he taunted the media, the police, and the public by mailing drawings, letters, clothing, and other evidence to prove he was the infamous BTK. 
For 30 years, the case remained open without leads until he slipped up. In 2004, Rader decided he needed a fix. He wrote a letter to the local newspaper, the Wichita Eagle, where he claimed he, the BTK killer, had killed Vicki Weggerly, and he included a photocopy of her license to prove it. Two months later, he contacted KAKE, a Wichita television station, to send them excerpts from a not-yet-released book that he envisioned being titled The BTK Story. By the end of the year, he had sent more evidence to the police of other murders and took up writing letters to them as well. The police responded to BTK by way of the newspaper. In one of Raider's letters, he asked if he were to put his writings on a floppy disk to give to them, could it be traced? Of course, the police told him it was absolutely safe to send the floppy disk and it wouldn't be traced. That was a fib. When Raider finally sent the disk, police could see the name of the last person who edited the Word documents, Dennis. They could also see that the edits were made by someone inside of the Christ Lutheran Church, Dennis Raider's church. From there, the police got a warrant to DNA test Raider's daughter's pap smear that she had just had done at Kansas State University Medical Center. And boom, they had a familial match. His is truly one of my favorite capture stories. I know, it really is. It's just so dumb. I just love the arrogance of like, you guys wouldn't lie to me. We're all cool here, right? (laughs) Even though I'm like a psycho serial killer, we're fine. And I'm pretty sure Google was invented by then. Like, look it up, buddy. (laughs) Look it up. Sometimes it's not just a killer's stupidity that gets them caught, but also public interference. Between June 1984 and August 1985, a serial killer named Richard Ramirez, dubbed the Night Stalker, was terrorizing the greater Los Angeles and San Francisco Bay areas. The man was unpredictable and used a variety of weapons to attack at least 18 people, 13 of which were killed, if not more. He used familiar items such as a tire iron, a handgun, a claw hammer, a machete, a ligature, and even his own hands and feet. There were a lot of things about Ramirez that were disparate from other serial killers, but one of them was that several people survived his attacks. This can be a problem for someone who wants to get away with it. Thanks to all the surviving victims, police had an excellent idea of what the Night Stalker looked like, which would be Ramirez's downfall. After returning home from a failed trip to see his brother in Tucson, Arizona, Ramirez found himself dodging police officers who were stationed in the Los Angeles bus terminal, searching for a chance to catch the elusive killer. Little did he know that while he may have been able to avoid their prying eyes, the public was also on high alert, and he wouldn't be so lucky to dodge them for long. As he ducked into a local convenience store, he saw his own face on the cover of a Spanish newspaper under the title Invasor Nocturno, The Night Invader. Public eyes were now all around him, quickly identifying him as El Matador, the killer. As he sprinted to a nearby Mustang to try to carjack, he was pulled out of it by a local. As he tried to run away, the residents enclosed around him and began beating him until the police arrived to break up what they thought was just a fight. Police had to work their way through a crowd of several hundred people on the 3700 block of Hubbard, but they were finally able to get their man. That reminds me of the subway shooter in New York just a couple months ago. The guy that attacked people on the subway and then just walked away. 
And then he was just walking through the neighborhood. And I believe it was a bodega either owner or employee who like looked over and saw him was like, uh, this is the guy. And they all grabbed him. Scary place to be a killer, man. I'm just glad that, you know, police work has improved in the 40 years since the Night Stalker that it's not left to the people. Just kidding. The 1980s, which were smack dab in what criminal justice experts call the epidemic years or the golden age of serial murder, was nothing if not a hodgepodge of frenzied criminal activity. From bogus claims leading to satanic panic to falsely accused daycare child sex abuse, the rumors of heinous crimes were rampant. In a time where people were fixated on stranger danger, hunting monsters and saving the children, some of those monsters slipped through the cracks. The bad guys of the 1980s weren't exactly as the rumors described, but they did do reprehensible acts. Today's case took place in the final year of that decade. A man known as the Vancouver child killer, who could have been the most prolific and horrific child sex abuser of our time, was apprehended thanks to a combination of impatience, coincidence, and the bravery of two people. A 17-year-old boy named Danny Miller was walking home after a shift at McDonald's in Vancouver, Washington. It was Labor Day weekend and it was warm. As he walked up the hill of Northeast Andreessen Road, the end of summer heat made the walk nearly unbearable even at 7 o'clock in the evening. Danny stopped halfway up the hill to get his heart rate under control and catch his breath. After a few minutes, he made his way up the remainder of the hill and onto a trail through David Douglas Park that was his usual shortcut home. However, on that day, there was someone laying in his path. As he approached, he saw that the person was a seriously injured young boy. He tried repeatedly to wake the boy, but there was no movement. There was a lot of blood, and he knew that something terrible had happened, likely a car accident, as they were so close to the main road. He looked around for help, but there was no one nearby. To his relief, the boy was still breathing, so he took off down the hill to a convenience store about three blocks away so that he could call 911. He described to the dispatcher that he had found an injured and likely dying young boy who was either Asian or Native American. Within a few minutes, police arrived at David Douglas Park and located the boy. It was clear that it was no car accident. The boy had been stabbed several times in the chest and abdomen. He also had what appeared to be defensive wounds along his legs. His injuries were so severe that he was life-flighted to Emanuel Hospital in Portland, but unfortunately, the boy didn't survive and he was pronounced dead at 7.37 p.m. It didn't take long to determine who the boy was. Shortly after the discovery of the boy they called Junior Doe, a man named Claire Near called police at 9 p.m. to report his two sons as missing. Billy and Cole Near, who were only a year apart in age and were always together, planned to go collect golf balls near the Vanco driving range for about an hour and a half. This was something they did frequently once they learned that they could ride around on their BMX bikes collecting golf balls by the bucket and get paid money to return them. To get to the driving range, they would often cut through David Douglas Park. When they didn't arrive home for dinner as expected, their father worried as it was highly unusual for them to be late so he went to look for them throughout the neighborhood. When he wasn't able to find them or their bikes, his worry increased and he called police for help. This call was a rude awakening for those working on the case of Junior Doe, 
they realized there was likely another boy somewhere in that park. After shutting down the northbound lanes of Andreessen Road, roughly a dozen searchers took to the park with flashlights that night to start spreading out from where Billy's body had been located earlier that evening. Within minutes, two BMX bikes were discovered under a bush to the side of the trail. After hours of searching, another body was found roughly 100 yards away from the trail. This time, it was clear he had been dead for some time. Under heavy brush about 20 yards from the bikes, they found Cole Near flat on his back, riddled with stab wounds similar to his brother's, with his underwear and pants pulled down, exposing his genitals. After positive identification of the boys, 11-year-old Cole's time of death, paired with the discovery of 10-year-old Billy's body, helped the coroner to estimate that the attack likely happened between 6.15 and 6.45 p.m. A motive wasn't clear. The boys didn't have any evidence of torture, and police were unsure if they had been sexually assaulted, so there wasn't much they understood other than that this was the result of someone very violent and willing to get up close and personal with a six-inch blade. As you likely expected, the investigation into who killed two brown boys in a quiet park in Vancouver, Washington, was an utter shitshow. Even with what would end up being an incredibly accurate profile, there were few leads. There was a possible eyewitness who saw a man talking to two young boys with bikes in the park and who was able to work with a sketch artist to provide a description. The man was likely between 18 and 30 years old. He had a slight slender build, was between 5'10 and 6 feet tall, and had uncombed dark hair. They also had a psychological profile of the killer that was put together by Dr. Ronald Turco. The profile stated that, quote, he would be 25 to 35 years old and likely kicked out of the military if he served. He would be a loner and probably kept photos of his victims, a diary of his offensives, including clipped articles and child pornography. The killer probably chose boys because he saw girls as defective. And lastly, there was Danny, who discovered the body of Billy Near. This, of course, is what police latched on to. For nine weeks, Danny became the focus of the police investigation. Was Danny covered in blood as you would expect from a stabbing? No. Did Danny have an alibi that he was working prior to the discovery? Yes. Did police ruin a young man's life while they flailed about trying to get a lead? I can think we can safely assume that's a yes. Yeah. This poor kid endured nine weeks of police probes. He did what any decent person would do and tried to get help for a dying child. And he ended up putting his life on hold while police picked it apart. He lost his friends. His neighbors wouldn't talk to him. And people started looking at him like he was guilty, even though he was never officially named as a suspect. Even after police officially cleared him, he would go on to suffer for years to come thanks to the PTSD from the ordeal. Needless to say, they eventually gave up as there was exactly zero evidence pointing to Danny. That left police with nothing outside of a sketch. Eventually, they just had to wait until another kid showed up dead. And that's what happened. In the weeks after the murders of Billy and Cole Near, the Vancouver area was on high alert. Parents didn't want their kids out alone as no one had been arrested in the case. 
But like many horrific events, less and less people continued to talk about it. It got published in the media less frequently, and the appeal of sending kids to play outside for a few minutes of quiet time had started to grow. Eventually, life regained some normalcy for those not directly impacted, until it happened again. 67-year-old St. Elmo Abernathy was spending the morning of November 1, 1989, hunting pheasant with his dog in the Washington State Game Preserve. After a few hours of crummy luck hunting, the pair made their way back to the boat dock where Abernathy had parked his car. As he walked, his dog took notice of something white in the brush. As he got closer, the whiteness took the shape of what he thought was a doll. He continued to draw closer and closer until he realized when he got within a few feet of the doll that it was incredibly detailed, down to the exposed genitalia. It was not a doll. It was, in fact, a human child. After the discovery, Abernathy booked it back to the car so he could call for help on his CB radio. Unfortunately, no one was answering, so he got into the car and drove a few miles to the nearby deli where he could call 911. A deputy met up with him at the deli just before 10 a.m. so that Abernathy could show him the way to the child's body. They found their way quickly, the deputy noting that no attempt was made to hide the body, which was a nude male child, laying on his back with his legs spread and his head facing east. The body was taken to the coroner, Archie Hamilton, who noted that the child had dried blood in his left nostril and ligature marks around his ankles, wrists, and throat. His body had been 20 feet from the parking area, and from the position of the grass underneath the child's body, it was believed that someone had thrown him into the location from a distance, which hinted to police that this person cared little for the child. So the part of the disposal is more like this is this makes it more that it's someone that doesn't know him. Right. Like if it was a mother, it may have he may have been bound in, in a, a blanket, blanket yeah. and and placed under a bush or something, but this child was literally thrown from the parking lot, from maybe a moving vehicle. You know, that's how it looked. An autopsy later revealed that the child had died due to strangulation and that he had likely been dead for at least a day. They were unable to get more specific than that. Unlike the Near brothers, there were obvious signs of sexual assault on both the child's anus and genitals. And while there were major differences in the cases in the form of possible motivation, manner of death, and the victim's age and race, police had considered that they were possibly related. Did St. Elmo have the same experience as the first boy who found? That would be a no. Within a half hour of the boy's discovery, one of the deputies believed they had a possible identification. A four-year-old Portland boy had been reported missing on October 29th, and he was described as blonde and blue-eyed, just like the small body they found in the preserve. Nine-year-old Justin Azeli and his four-year-old brother Lee had woken up bright and early on October 29, 1989. The two hung around the house until around 11 a.m. when they decided to meet up with their neighbor Mark and head to the Richmond Elementary School playground. When they got there, the older boys found two of their friends already playing with a football, and they quickly joined in, leaving four-year-old Lee to amuse himself by playing on the volcano-shaped climbing structure known as the Mound. Every once in a while, Justin would look up to find his brother still playing on the structure. Once he had ran over and helped him tie his shoes that had come undone and went back to his friends. 
and a little later he looked up again to find a strange man talking to Lee. He quickly went over to remind his brother not to talk to strangers. By then, the man had already walked away, so he told Lee to holler at him if the guy came back and did anything odd. But the coast seemed clear, so Justin ran back over to continue playing with his friends. The next time Justin looked up, his brother was gone. Sometime between 1 p.m. and 1.30 p.m., Justin had returned home and explained to his father that Lee left the park. By 1.30, the police were called and Justin explained that a man had been speaking to his little brother right before he disappeared. He described him as wearing a blue baseball hat with red lettering, blue jeans, and a t-shirt. The man was white, between the ages of 32 and 38 years old, about 5'10", and had short brown hair and a small mustache. Pretty good for a kid. Yeah, to remember all that. I don't think I could have ever guessed someone's age. Actually, Me neither. I was horrible at that. When you find out the real age, his age is accurate because I always thought people were just really old. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you don't look like a kid. You're 40. <laughs> yeah. As Lee Azeli was just four years old, there was no chance his disappearance could be written off as a runaway. So police worked quickly to circulate his description to all officers. We're so used to telling these cases where there's this long delay in a search for a child, but this is not one of those cases. The police immediately went to work, and they even brought in two dog handlers to start tracing Lee's scent from the park. The dogs picked up on a scent quickly, but as anticipated, it disappeared on the street where a car was likely waiting. His scent was once again picked up inside a grocery store called Kenow's, where employees said they did see a small blonde boy looking at candy, but he was alone and it was just after 1 p.m. This did seem odd to police as they didn't think it was likely that a child abducted from a park would have then made an appearance in a store with their kidnapper just moments later. Workers at the store did remember Lee, but they didn't remember him being with a man or anyone in general. Within hours of Lee's disappearance, dozens of volunteers and police officers combined forces to search for him. Unfortunately, after that one sighting in the store, there wasn't any new information until the discovery that Abernathy made a few days later. The aftermath of the abduction, rape, and murder of Lee Azeli, who was white and blonde, was quite different than that of Cole and Billy Near, who were Native American. For nine weeks, police put pressure on the person who found Billy's body, and once they cleared him, it appeared to many that nothing more was being done on the case. Lee's case, however, prompted the formation of a task force. It was noted in the media that this was spurred by the fact that there was a possible serial child murderer out there, one that killed all three boys. That seemed unlikely, as the Clark County coroner himself noted that there were absolutely no similarities between the cases. The Columbia newspaper released an article the day after the discovery of Lee's body, and they noted that, quote, Police see little to no reason to suspect any link between this slaying and the murders of the two boys at David Douglas Park in September. I will note that there were some slight similarities in the police sketches in each case. Maybe they did think there was a link, but they didn't want to worry the public. Despite the task force, there weren't many leads except for the descriptions given by a few 9- and 10-year-olds from the park. Police were able to solve one mystery, and that was the scent the dog picked up at the store. If you recall, I mentioned that the dogs picked up Lee's scent at the nearby grocery store, which confused them as it was a likely abduction and that just didn't make sense. 
After Lee's older brother was interviewed a second time, he came clean about something. He had felt incredibly guilty and believed it was his fault that his brother was taken, so he finally told police what he had been hiding. He had pulled a prank on his brother. When they were at the playground, Justin told his brother to go meet him at the grocery store a few blocks away. Meanwhile, he hid out of sight. What he didn't realize is that his brother would go all the way to the store by himself. So when he went to go look for his brother, it's likely that Lee came back to an empty playground and that's when he was actually abducted. By then, two of their friends had already left and there was hardly anyone on the playground who could have been a witness. That's so sad. I was already thinking of how guilty his brother must have felt. Always in these types of cases. Yeah. Not only feeling guilty in the moment, but in the investigation, knowing that there's more he can say. Right. And luckily, that second interview happened pretty quickly. So it wasn't oh, good. a terribly long time before they realized the timeline was a little bit off. I'm proud of him that he eventually said something because yeah. I think that really does change that timeline. The city of Vancouver and surrounding areas were on high alert. There was a child killer, potentially a serial child killer, on the prowl, and they were likely going to strike again. Yet, little to no progress was made within the two weeks following the discovery of Lee's body. That was until an incident at the very popular movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which was playing in the New Liberty Theater in Camas, Washington. Who knew an evening with Rick Moranis would change everything? On November 13, 1989, a six-year-old boy named James Kirk was attending the 8 p.m. showing of the movie with his sister, his mother, and her boyfriend. About 30 minutes into the movie, James really needed to use the restroom. After asking his mother, Janet, he quickly got out of his chair and hurried to the men's room to use the facilities. Unfortunately, he didn't realize that someone from the theater had followed him into the bathroom. The man immediately grabbed James and started hauling him out of the theater. James was terrified, but remembered what he had always been told to do if a stranger attacked him, and so he started screaming, help me. His screams and squirming didn't seem to draw the attention from the theater staff. At first, this was likely because the man kept saying, calm down, son, calm down. James desperately wanted them to realize that this was not his father and that something was very wrong. As the man brought him out to the parking lot, it dawned on people that this was not the boy's father. The theater owner watched on in horror as the man quickly ran with the boy to his car. But as he reached into his pocket for his keys, James saw an opportunity and escaped his grasp. He went barreling towards the theater owner, arms wide, screaming that the man had hurt him. Another employee took the time to memorize the car's description and license plate as the man drove away. Moments later, the boy's mother and boyfriend came tearing out of the theater. The boyfriend got the information about the car and took off after it. While James and his mother were reunited and driven to the police station by an employee, the boyfriend, William Graves, returned roughly 10 minutes later with the suspect in hand. That's rad. Apparently, William had chased after the car and the universe was looking out for this man because the attempted kidnapper's car had broken down. William took the opportunity to calmly walk up to the driver and ask if he needed help. He then locked one arm around the man's neck and put his left arm in a hammer lock. Hell yeah. And then he dragged him back to the theater asking along the way, why did you hurt the boy? And he also threatened to break his neck. That's amazing. 
The Camas police arrived and arrested the man for the attempted kidnapping and brought him to the Camas Police Department headquarters. Due to the child's age and the fact that there were three open child murder cases, the Camas police contacted the task force working on the kidnapping and murder of Lee Azeli. Thus began the most intense three days of interviewing, which resulted in a man named Wesley Allen Dodd confessing to the murders of 11-year-old Cole Near, 10-year-old William Near, and 4-year-old Lee Azeli. Wesley Allen Dodd was born July 3, 1961, in Toppenish, Washington. His parents, Wesley and Carol, had three children, and Wesley was the oldest. The earliest years of his childhood seemed rather normal, but it was around age nine that things started to change for him. On his ninth birthday, he was playing at his cousin's house with a friend, and the three boys decided to go swimming. The two other boys pulled down their trunks and touched their penises together, and that seemed to spark something in Dodd. He, too, wanted to try it, so he and his cousin did it together. Soon, he began to experiment with masturbation by using his mother's lotion. The Dodd family relocated to Umatilla, Oregon. Dodd was described as a bit of a nerd. He was shy, pigeon-toed, liked books, didn't do well at sports, and was often picked on by the kids at school who called him names like Sissy. Perhaps that isolation spurred him to explore other interests because soon he went down a darker path. At age 10, Dodd had a new neighbor. She was about six years old. He had convinced her to come into his garage with him and his four-year-old sister. Inside, the six-year-old girl showed her privates to Dodd, and he was fascinated. In return for catching a glimpse, he pulled his pants down to show her his penis, but she refused to look at it, claiming she had already seen one before. By age 11, Dodd became obsessed with the naked body, fixated on magazines that showed people at nude beaches. At age 12, he started experimenting on his own body. A friend of his described to him how his stepfather required a catheter. Before long, Dodd was sticking the ink tube of pens and needles into his own urethra. This became a bit of a party trick that he would later show to his victims. Dodd soon moved from childhood curiosities to learning he got a real thrill from sexual deviancy. At the age of 13, he started exposing himself to children in the neighborhood. He often stood naked in his bedroom window while kids would walk by or ride their bikes by on their way to school. This, of course, got him into trouble, so he decided that rather than exposing himself from his own house, he would go out into the neighborhood and do it. It's estimated that he had flashed around 40 different children in a span of two months. He mostly focused on flashing young boys, but if there was a girl with them, that wouldn't stop him. About a year into his road show, one of the kids recognized him and the police later showed up on his doorstep to tell his parents what he was up to. In an attempt to stay out of trouble, Dodd focused on masturbating instead of flashing. The old right hand wasn't enough as he tried different experiments, such as using a cord to squeeze his testicles or tie weights to them to see how heavy he could go. At the age of 14, Dodd was once again flashing kids all over town, this time while riding his bike, a true talent. He would have his little Wesley out so he could just lift up his shirt and flash his penis and testicles while still wearing his pants. It's really a 
talent there. That's a lot of time spent perfecting that. I'd say that's all he spent his time on, other than band. I think he was in the band. He was also enticing his dog to lick his bum and penis by smearing poop on himself. Couldn't even get to the peanut butter. He was just using, using poop. This only stopped when his dog eventually bit him. And in this particular year of his life, there was a lot of escalation from masturbation and flashing to molestation. And this may have been impacted by the fact that his parents got a divorce that year. In November of 1976, he played tug of war with his cousin using string and their penises. He also molested his nine-year-old cousin in the closet. He had convinced her to hold and tug on his penis, and after that, he coaxed her into letting him kiss her vagina. She seemed to find this interesting because the next time they were together, she suggested that they do it again. This time, her eight-year-old brother was involved. Not only did Dodd repeat what he did to her, but he also put her brother's penis in his mouth. By the time he was 15, he believed he needed physical contact with children. The flashing was no longer giving him a thrill. He often went to the elementary school and targeted young children. On one occasion, he approached a group of six children and convinced them to play a game. He had them stand in a line and put their hands behind their back. He explained that he would put something in their hand and they would have to guess what it was. And this, of course, was his penis. A few months later, Dodd ended up arrested after flashing two young girls aged 8 and 10. Rather than getting time in juvenile hall, the authorities recommended to his parents that he get counseling. Now, mind you, his father was aware of some of his proclivities. It was not a secret that he was masturbating in a way that kids his age were just not doing, and they were aware that he was flashing children, and it was suspected that he had a sexual preference for children. He did go on to counseling. However, I'm not sure how frequent that was. And what we do know is he learned a lot in counseling. Prior to that counseling, he knew very little about sex from an educational perspective. It was mainly just what he was learning as he was doing. So once he was in a therapy setting, he was learning the real names for the body parts. He was learning how sex works. And I don't know if that was good or bad. At age 16, Dodd was masturbating at school and running around his block nude. He was also molesting more children. One of his neighbors asked him to come babysit while the children slept. He took advantage of this and molested their three-year-old daughter while she was asleep. He also molested his dad's girlfriend's three-year-old daughter and his 10-year-old stepbrother. During these later teen years, other people were aware that he had molested children, and he was once again forced into therapy where he claims that they rarely talked about the molestation. He did talk to his therapist about how he was flashing people, but they didn't really talk about what he was doing to those kids. And there wasn't a history of him being... Uh, abused or anything in any way besides no. just like kind of the inappropriate contact but you know when you're kids and figuring out bodies no nope. he describes his childhood you know being hit once in a while like spanked uh, but he describes his childhood as totally loveless like he was never told I love you by his parents they just cared for him like they just uh. fed him and clothed him um, but no there was no history of sexual abuse so this was definitely like his urges he didn't even know what that was right. until he realized touching another child's that's, genitals. That's how he ended up expressing those feelings. Right. It just happened to show itself that way. 
His therapist believed that his lack of sexual knowledge prior to therapy likely contributed to him being childlike, which prohibited him from bonding with people his own age. So like part of it was he felt at home with these little kids. Yeah, he's stunted. But he wasn't unintelligent. Right. It, it was just like some sort of well, because he almost stopped. had he almost had like a childlike fascination with bodies and mm-hmm. sexuality and, and a childlike understanding. And kids are prone to doing that kind of yeah. exploration. That whole beginning stuff was normal kid yeah. stuff. I remember getting in trouble at daycare once for showing my privates like it happened. Yeah, I had an incident with my friends. I yep. It's fairly normal. It's just it escalated and got out of control and then it became a need for him. When Dodd was 19 years old, after a year of convincing children to take off their clothes for him and inappropriately touching children he had access to, he escalated to an attempted abduction. Two girls aged 11 and 7 reported him to police. He told police he had intended to take them to an isolated area and molest them, and yet he was not charged with anything. He didn't do any jail time. Over the past few years, there were several complaints made to police about Dodd, but they never, ever did anything except for mandatory therapy. Wesley Dodd enlisted in the U.S. military in September of 1981 at the age of 20. And I'll note, he joined the military to avoid a charge for molestation. The Navy had no idea that he had a background of pedophilia and molestation. They probably would not have let him in if they did. Yeah. Initially, he did very well there. He trained in San Diego and ended up graduating within the top 10% of his class. This isn't surprising as he was always a decent student, albeit awkward and shy. Dodd used his time in the Navy to target children. He was stationed in Bangor, Washington. In his time off from the Navy, he would loiter in arcades where he would constantly try to engage with boys aged 7 to 10. During this time, several boys were molested by him in that arcade. He forced, fondled them, oral sex on them, and sodomized them. Eventually, one of the parents caught on to what he was doing and brought it to the attention of the Navy. After two years of service, Dodd was discharged from the Navy. On June 6, 1982, Dodd was arrested for communicating with a minor for immoral purposes. He had lured a nine-year-old Richland Park boy and tried to convince him to take off his clothes. While the case was pending in the courts, another accusation against Dodd surfaced. On December 29, 1982, it was alleged that Dodd approached a six-year-old boy playing on school grounds in Benton County. He convinced the boy to go to a nearby shed where he exposed his penis to him. Dodd was arrested again for exposing himself to young boys. He had tried to convince a group of boys to come to his motel room to play strip poker for $50. When interviewed by police, he admitted that his intent was to molest them. They didn't file any charges. And within days, he was arrested again for exposing himself to a five-year-old boy. For all of this, he received 19 days in jail and started court-ordered counseling. And I know this is pre-computer era, but the fact that it didn't pop up on anyone's radar in Vancouver when the bodies were found to be like, oh, you know, that guy that we've arrested like 50 times for this stuff. It is hard because he's moving, you know, tri cities to Seattle, to Vancouver. It's he's all over the place. So without a computer system, that becomes very hard. 
By January of 1983, Dodd was given six months in prison for yet again communicating with a minor. During the sentence, he was undergoing counseling, and when it came time to evaluate him for the other case of the six-year-old, it was determined that he was not making progress in counseling, and he was given a whopping additional 23 days. That'll teach him. While living in Lewiston, Idaho, he met a single mother with a nine-year-old son and promptly moved to befriend them. Not long after becoming friends, he started regularly babysitting the son on the weekends. After a few babysitting sessions without any inappropriate behavior, an opportunity presented itself when the boy needed Dodd to bring him a towel while he was taking a bath. When the boy allowed Dodd to remain in the bathroom with him at the end of his bath, he took that as an invitation to sexually molest him that night. While he thought the boy was asleep, he performed oral sex on him. Little did he know the boy was awake and immediately told the child therapist he had been seeing in his next session. This resulted in an arrest. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but it was commuted to a year in county jail where he served a whopping four months in the Nez Perce County Jail. The offense also got him two years of mandatory outpatient therapy. The next year, Dodd relocated to the Tri-Cities area. Dodd continually set himself up for easy access to children to abuse. Whether it was a friend's child like the seven-year-old he took on a fishing trip so he could be alone with him, or the two children next door that he regularly babysat and abused. He rented apartments where there were a lot of single mothers so he could easily access their children. He even went as far as to rape an 18-month-old son of his co-worker. Dodd started dating his female co-worker so that he could get close to her son. In fact, he disclosed that when he had sex with her, the only way he could climax was thinking of her baby. Sometimes he repeatedly molested the same child. In 1986, when he was living in the Tri-Cities area of eastern Washington, he had access to a four-year-old child that he molested for five months. In fact, he called this a, quote, sexual relationship. This began after he overheard the boy talking to a three-year-old girl in their apartment complex. The kids were showing their genitals to each other, and Dodd saw this as an opportunity. He threatened to tell on them to their moms and then lured the boy to his own apartment where he started touching him. This turned into a regular occurrence. The boy would be in Dodd's apartment four times a week. Dodd also had sex with that boy's mother on at least one occasion. It was truly like the only thing he could think of. He was solely driven. Like every choice was made in regards to that. You know, some people live paycheck to paycheck or vacation to vacation. This was all he cared about. Wow. After living for some time in the Tri-Cities, Dodd relocated to the Seattle area. On June 13, 1987, Dodd was arrested in Seattle for attempting to lure an eight-year-old boy from outside his home into a vacant building. Dodd asked the boy if he would help him find his friend and that his mother and father had given him permission to get his help. The eight-year-old told Dodd that he would go get some toys and then he'd come help him. But when he went inside, he told his mother's boyfriend the situation and the boyfriend assured the child that he did not give any such permission. After he was arrested, the prosecutors in the case had suggested a sentence of five years due to his previous sexual offenses. But Since he did not touch the child or expose his genitals to him, he was sent to jail for 118 days, two years probation, and was ordered to complete a Bellevue treatment program for sexual deviance. 
Once he finished his short stint in jail, Dodd relocated to Vancouver, Washington and secured a job as a shipping clerk. And he was all cured. Yeah. By the late 1980s, Dodd had molested an estimated 175 children and was regularly fantasizing about killing the children he raped and abused. He even considered how he would do it, torturing them, castrating them, and maybe even dabbling in cannibalism. Eventually, his fantasies started to become full-fledged plans, and that was how he found himself in the fall of 1989, spending a lot of time in David Douglas Park searching for his next victim, which ended up being his next two victims, Cole and Billy Near. After Ray Graves single-handedly took down Dodd, police arrived at the theater to place him under arrest and take him to the Camas Police Department headquarters, where lead detectives on the Lee Azeli task force were waiting. Over the course of three days, Detectives C.W. Jensen and Dave Trimble diligently interviewed Dodd, hoping for a confession. And boy, did they get one. C.W. Jensen, he was a major Portland police guy. He might have even become, I don't think he was chief, but he ended up doing a lot of TV stuff back in the 90s. Likely so because of this case. That's I didn't realize he was connected to it. The interview started off pretty straightforward. The detectives made it clear that they were interested in what Dodd intended to do to the boy he tried to abduct from the movie theater. I don't think they anticipated how straightforward he ended up being. He told them that originally he had singled out another boy. The initial boy headed to the bathroom before the movie started, so he followed him. And as he walked out of the theater, the other boy, James, walked in. He preferred the second boy, so he gave up on the boy number one and awaited his opportunity with James. That opportunity came about 30 minutes into the movie, so he followed him to the bathroom and told him he wanted him to leave with him. The boy said no and immediately started crying, so he punched him, picked him up, and ran out of the theater pretending to be his father. We know how that ended. Dodd was quite clear. He wanted to molest the boy. What the police didn't know yet is that he had far more in store for him. As their conversation went on, Dodd slipped up. He mentioned that he had just moved to the Vancouver area on Labor Day, the same weekend that the Near Boys were murdered. Dodd had intended to avoid that information as not to bring up Labor Day and remind the police of an entirely different, ongoing, and unsolved case. But he kept divulging. He went on and on about his history of flashing and molesting children, maybe believing that if he kept his story close to the truth, it would be believable enough to dismiss him of more than an intent to molest. The police went on to ask seemingly innocuous questions about his life, and then one of them slipped in the question, are you aware of the recent homicides in the Vancouver area involving young boys? The look on Dodd's face showed them that he had not anticipated that question, and I might add the detectives thought he looked very guilty. They then started applying the pressure, suggesting that it was quite odd that as soon as he came to town, two boys ended up dead. They suggested that he had done it. Dodd immediately claimed to love children so much that he would never want to hurt one. We've heard that before. While he's in the same conversation about how he hurt a child. Well, that's just loving them, right? Punching them in the face. 
He also claimed to have never been to Portland where Lee had been abducted from, but the house of cards he was barely building had already started to tumble. The detectives asked Dodd if they could make a visit to his apartment and uh, take a look around. Dodd said he would consider it, but that he wanted to talk to a lawyer. Then he started to fold. Tears pooled in his eyes and he requested a glass of water. When the water was brought to him, he told police they would find evidence of all three boys' murders in his apartment. He told them there was a special key on his keychain that would open a briefcase he kept under his bed, and inside they would find what they needed to understand what happened to the boys. Wesley Dodd's apartment did indeed have what they needed to prove that he was the Vancouver child killer. Once the warrant to search his home was executed, they found the briefcase under his bed and unlocked it to find newspaper clippings about all three murdered boys, a photo album labeled Family Memories that contained photos of Lee Azelli's naked body, both bound by his arms and ankles while alive, and photos of him after his death. It had a pair of underwear belonging to Lee and a diary that documented every disturbing detail of the crimes he committed. I'd like to once again throw out a warning. I'm going to talk about the evidence, and if you're uncomfortable or unable to hear about violent sex crimes against children, this is your cue to move on out. I think we're long past that if anyone's still on board. That is a good point. Dodd's diary was written as chapters and started on his ninth birthday, the introduction to his sexuality when his cousin and him touched penises. From there, he talked about his teens and all the children he tried to molest, did molest, and all the times he barely got a slap on the wrist for his actions. In Chapter 5, he detailed the type of abuse he planned for the children he babysat, licking their genitals and anuses while they slept, unaware of what he was doing. This, he gloated, he would get away with. After Chapter 5, there's a change in the diary and it turns into more of a log or details of his crimes against the Near Brothers, or Incident 1. Lee Azelli, Incident 2. There's also Incident 3, presumably what would have happened to James Kirk if he didn't get away. He was particular and organized. In his notes from the weekend that he murdered the Near Brothers, he wrote, quote, all my actions from now on will be logged immediately following each circumstance, and those logs or stories I'll refer to proper photo album page numbers as they exist for those stories. I hope within four months to be using videotapes as well as Polaroids for certain cases. Labor Day weekend begins on September 2nd, where Dodd drew a map and visited David Douglas Park. That is where Dodd intended to find his next victim. He found the isolated areas of the park and noted that he saw a few children of interest. The next day, September 3rd, Dodd goes back to the park around 10.40 a.m. He explored it for five hours, noting the locations he could rape and murder children. In the evening, he organized his photo book and worked on the key he would use in his photo albums. P is for photos taken by photographers. C is for the children he sees nude but doesn't rape. V is for the children that he repeatedly molests and rapes. The morning of the Near Brothers' murders, Dodd woke up to an erection that wouldn't go away. He believed he needed a child to get relief. In the early half of the day, he was again at David Douglas Park and noted that there were a couple of children between the ages of 7 to 10 that he was interested in, but nothing happened. He left the park at 5.45 p.m. and returned again at 6.10 
At 618, he found his victims, two boys on bikes. At first, he wasn't interested because they weren't white, which was his preference. But he was likely becoming impatient, and armed with a knife and a piece of cord, he approached them. He demanded that the boys come with him. He led them to an isolated area where he bound their wrists together with the cord that he had brought. He then forced them to kneel at his feet, and he told the boys that one of them needed to take down their pants. When asked why, he was very direct and said he intended to give oral stimulation. Over the next few minutes, Dodd focused his abuse on Cole, putting the boy's penis in his mouth for less than a minute. His intended target was Billy, but when he turned his attention to him, Billy started to cry, so Dodd continued to focus on Cole. As he bent Cole over, intending to rape him, he was unable to keep an erection so it didn't go as planned. So he said out loud, quote, just one more thing, and then he stabbed Billy in the stomach. As he turned to Cole to stab him, Billy started running away. He stabbed Cole several times in the stomach and chest before running after Billy. He caught him by the arm and stabbed him in the shoulder, side, and stomach. Once he believed both boys were dead, he left the area and got into his car, where he watched Danny run down the hill after discovering Billy's body. The next day, he went on with his life, going to work, throwing the knife he used to kill two children into a dumpster during his lunch break, going home, having dinner, and masturbating to the memory of the little boys he murdered. Shortly after the murders, Dodd writes in his diary about how he's ready for another victim, and this time he'll hide the body better. He made sure to cut out articles about the Near brothers and put them into his photo book. But then it's back to planning. He fantasizes about rape and about stabbing a child while he's raping them. At first, he seems to laugh at police in his writings about how they have no idea Cole was molested. But two days later, on September 8th, he writes about his worry. The police made a sketch of the man from the park. That same day, deputies pull up to the house he rents a room from. Unfortunately, they weren't there to talk to him. They were there because his landlady called about a man she evicted. A few days later, he felt good again because the news showed the sketches and they didn't look anything like him. He begins planning Incident 2 on September 6th, but he wouldn't act on it until October 29th when little Lee was taken from the playground. He's excited for Incident 2 because he has ideas. He wants to record it with audio and he hopes that he has enough money to buy a video camera. This time, he has an interest in practicing surgery on his victim perhaps tie them down to a torture rack to dismember them or remove their genitals while they're still alive. Among the pages of his writing, he sketched a torture rack where he labeled it with live kids. He brainstormed ideas for his next victim, cannibalism, necrophilia, stabbing, starving them to death, suffocating. In his diary, he has a list of 12 potential options to kill his victim, all of which he was considering for incident two. For a few pages, he goes on and on about the potential horrors he could inflict during Incident 2. But on September 28th, he writes about actually going out and looking for a victim. This time, he planned to go to Portland to find one, starting with Oaks Pioneer Park. That didn't work out, so he went to a movie and followed a boy into the bathroom. That didn't work out either, so he decided to try again the next day. On October 29, 1989, he detailed everything that happened to Leah Zelli. He started the day by purchasing film for his Polaroid camera. 
Then he started cruising the streets of southeast Portland at 11.30 a.m. looking for his victim. He spotted a playground and parked his yellow 1974 Ford Pinto station wagon along the curb of Sherman Street. He got out and positioned himself against a telephone pole and scanned the area. He spotted some children playing in the relatively empty playground of Richland Elementary School. Four boys around eight or nine were playing with a football, while a young boy played alone on a play structure. Dodd approached the boy and asked him if he wanted some money and to play games. He quickly drew the child's interest and was later able to walk away with him hand in hand and coax him to get into his car, where he told him they would go ask his father if he could come play games with him. The little boy looked out the window of the car as they drove away and noted out loud that it was not the way to his house. Dodd explained that they were going to his house to play games. They arrived at Dodd's residence at 1.30 p.m., where Dodd was able to get Lee into his room without the landlady or his fellow tenant knowing because they weren't home. After preparing his camera, he gave Lee a book of nude photos to look at. He then insisted Lee take off his clothes and lay down. After multiple requests, the boy complied. For 30 minutes, he didn't lay a hand on Lee, but by 2 p.m., his assault began. For hours, he alternated between molesting Lee and putting on cartoons for him to watch. He got him a burger and a toy and convinced him to stay the night, as if he had a choice. Throughout the afternoon, Dodd posed the child to take photos, tying his hands and feet to the bed. At 6.38 p.m., he writes that Lee was playing and that he was likely going to kill him in the morning by suffocating him in his sleep. By the evening, Lee missed his brother and father and started to cry, so Dodd placated him by offering him his nude photo album again. By 9.35 p.m., the pair are in bed together, and after Lee falls asleep, Dodd begins to molest him, which continues throughout the entire night and early morning. At 3.15 a.m., Dodd told Lee that the next day he planned to kill him. Lee didn't believe him at first, but then he started crying and eventually fell asleep. At 4.20 a.m., Dodd inserted something into Lee's urethra and then did it again at 4.55. By 5.30, Dodd decided he was ready to kill Lee. He crawled on top of him and choked him with one hand. Once Lee passed out, he resuscitated him and choked him again. After he awoke a second time, Dodd put the rope he purchased while planning Incident 2 around Lee's neck and tightened it until he could no longer breathe. He then lifted him into the air with one arm, holding his bottom with the other, and moved him to the closet where he hung him up. He then leaves him hanging there in the closet for 10 minutes while he cleaned his room. He then goes back to take photos of Lee hanging in his closet before molesting his lifeless body once again. When he was sure he was dead, he took the rope off of his neck and put him up on the top shelf of his closet, hiding him behind blankets. He planned to come back later and do more after his shift at work. Dodd arrived home from work at 5 p.m. and promptly removed Lee from the closet. He detailed the color and temperature of his body, noting his theories about how dead bodies work and how he continued to abuse him, raping him several times. Eventually, he knew he wouldn't be able to keep him much longer due to decomposition, so he put on gloves and loaded Lee in the car and dumped his body at the reserve at 7.35 p.m. Lee would later be found two days later. The next day, October 31st, Dodd watched the news and discovered that the new sketch put together by the young boys at the playground looked a lot like him. 
He then decided to burn all of Lee's clothing, except his Ghostbusters underwear, in which Dodd placed into his briefcase along several Polaroids that he took of the boy. Within a few days, Dodd already moved on to plan his third incident, the one that was intended for the boy he tried to abduct in the theater. He detailed two possible ways this victim would die, either by placing a bag over his head while he rapes him or by taping his mouth shut with duct tape and using a clothespin to plug his nose. He immediately started his log again, detailing the movies he went to to follow children into the bathroom, hoping for an opportunity to abduct one. His diary entries end after describing how he may want to try his medical experiments on his next victim. Luckily, James got away and Dodd was caught because police also found in his room a torture rack that he had built himself. Perhaps he would have followed through on the sick medical surgeries he detailed in his diary for the victim intended for Incident 3. Murder charges were filed Friday, November 17th, and at the time, the death penalty was in discussion. As you may remember from my previous Washington death penalty episode, Wicked Part of Me, it was still legal in 1989. Clark County Prosecutor Art Curtis and his Chief Deputy Ranger Bennett met with Dodd's lawyer as it was their policy to do so before deciding if they would proceed with the death penalty or not. For Does it say what purpose that? I think just to give them a heads up, like maybe they want to make a deal. Or maybe a deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I feel like in any case, if you're going to go for the death penalty, you want to give them the option to admit to it. So how this worked at the time, if it became a death penalty case, the case would go to trial. And if the jury convicted a defendant of aggravated murder, they would reconvene to discuss whether or not they recommend the death penalty. All 12 jury members would have to agree on death. If a single person said no, the punishment would automatically become life without parole. Dodd's case wasn't as straightforward because he could potentially have two trials, one for Lee Azeli and one for the Near Brothers. So if the first trial fails at the death penalty conviction and goes to a life sentence instead, there's always a second trial with a different jury available. So basically two chances for the death penalty. Dodd's legal team, of course, tried to suppress both his confession and the evidence from his home, which was basically the entire case. Luckily, the court said the confession was voluntary and all property seized at the home was done so legally. The only thing they allowed them to leave out were the parts of the diary that referenced Dodd raping Lee's corpse because they couldn't really prove that outside of the diary. The prosecution was then able to read excerpts from Dodd's diary to the jury. And guys, it's bad. What I detailed to you was really bad, but that's mild. The language he uses, the details he provides, it's just so disturbing. So you can read it if you're one of those people that feels like you need to read it. If you dig around in my sources, you'll eventually find it. I'm not going to give you any clues, though, because I really recommend against it. This case took me forever, not because it's my best writing or because it's my deepest dive, but because I had to take breaks because of the content. In my opinion, if a jury were to convict and say yes to the death penalty, this case, hands down, would have been the one. Dodd realized that. So after he realized it was impossible to defend himself in these cases, 
he wrote a letter to the prosecutor requesting that he be allowed to change his plea from not guilty to guilty against the wishes of his legal counsel. Here's the letter. My lawyer says I can't do this, but I'm going to try anyway. He's not letting me make any of my own decisions. He told me he could do things over my objection if necessary. I wish to change my plea to guilty on all counts. I've asked Detective Buckner to deliver this to you. I know of no other way to get around my attorneys. If this is possible to do, please ask for whatever hearing is required. To be clear, he wanted to plead guilty of the aggravated first-degree murder of Cole Near, William Near, and Leazelli, as well as the attempted first-degree murder of James Kirk, not just kidnapping. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive they were able to charge it. Well, I'm guessing that had something to do with the diary. Yes, because he had an intent yeah. to murder. Yeah. The change of plea required a review by a psychiatrist because they wanted to ensure he was competent. He passed his competency review with Dr. Maletsky, and despite their wishes for Dodd not to do this, even his own legal team felt he was competent enough to enter a guilty plea. He was granted the requested hearing on June 11, 1990, and he stood in front of the court and announced his change of plea. This plea of guilt also turned into Dodd asking for the death penalty to appease the families of the victims he killed. After three full days of deliberation, the jury sentenced Wesley Allen Dodd to death on July 14, 1990. He would be the first person to be executed in the state of Washington since the year 1963, and only four people would be executed after him. It ended up being a bit controversial, not because, like a few others on the execution list, he asked for it, but because of the method he selected. Now, the law at the time stated that a death row inmate could choose their method of death, either lethal injection or hanging. Dodd chose hanging. He claimed that since that was the way he killed Leazelli, it was only fair that he should die the same way, like an eye for an eye. The American Civil Liberties Union disagreed. They filed a lawsuit that hanging violated the Eighth Amendment and it should be seen as a cruel and unusual punishment. The Supreme Court blocked it as it was legally Dodd's choice. They proceeded. In fact, the state was ordered to allow witnesses to watch the hanging rather than do it behind a curtain. Dodd never appealed his death penalty conviction. All he cared about was raping children, and he knew if given the opportunity, he would do it again and it would result in murder. I've been molesting kids nonstop since I was 13 years old, over half my life. Uh, anything happened, I can guarantee I'd do it again, and sooner or later I would kill another child. I've done it before, and at the time I liked it. The preparations for Dodd's death took days. The gallows were painted, and a rope one and a quarter inch in diameter and made of manila hemp was procured. Something I didn't know is that the rope for hangings has to be made ready. It was boiled and stretched to ensure that the stiffness was gone. If that isn't done, a body might bounce back up after being dropped through the trap door. As Dodd stood at the gallows, a black hood newly purchased was placed over his head and a wooden board was fixed to his back to ensure that he stayed straight and upright during the entire hanging. Twelve people were present when Dodd entered the room to be executed on January 5, 1993. 
They included people from the media, a representative of each of the victim's families, and prison officials. As he stood on the gallows awaiting his fate, he spoke to the witnesses and said, quote, I was once asked by somebody, I don't remember who, if there was any way sex offenders could be stopped. I said no. I was wrong. I was wrong when I said there was no hope, no peace. There is hope. There is peace. I found both in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to the Lord and you will find peace. Dodd fell through the platform trapdoor beneath his feet at 12.05 p.m. It took him roughly four minutes to die. He was taken for an autopsy, cremated, and his ashes were given to his family. Now, something I want to talk about that I find really interesting about this case is how Dodd really pushed for awareness while he was in prison awaiting his death. Sure, he was a terrible guy who did some of the worst things I've ever read about, but he knew he was wrong and he wanted to make parents and kids aware of the dangers that were out in the world. And while there are murderers who have done similar things like speak to the media, counsel inmates, write books, he's on the extreme side. I mean, he's one of a kind. So let me tell you a little bit about that. First, Dodd actually wrote a letter to Governor Booth the same day that he had given Buckner the letter for the prosecution team. Here's what it said. I'm sure you've heard of me. I hope this letter reaches you. My name is Wesley Dodd. I'm writing to give you my point of view on the citizen written measure for sex crimes. I agree with longer, stiffer sentences and with a legal procedure to commit violent crimes through civil proceedings. I also agree with registering with county sheriffs. I also believe more money is needed for the treatment of victims and offenders. The only thing I have a problem with, but do not totally disagree with, is warning the community when an offender is in their midst. While I believe the people have a right to know when an offender is in their community, it must be done carefully. It could create some dangerous situations. For instance, if everyone knows where an offender lives, it could cause even more trouble. The offender would undoubtedly be harassed, making him or her more likely to reoffend. Also, vigilantes and other self-proclaimed do-gooders may decide to take matters into their own hands to make sure the offender does not reoffend. This could lead to all types of unwanted harassment by both sides, fights, property damage, physical injury to either side, or worse. I mean this letter to be used to help stop others as myself. Also, do not forget about the juvenile offenders. I started when I was 13 or 14 years old. By the time I graduated high school, I'd been caught five times and reported to police only three times. I could have been stopped 10 years ago, but each of those times, no charges were filed. I was taught by the police that I could molest children and get away with it. When much later charges were filed, I did only three weeks in jail. I later committed three very violent offenses, ending with murder, while I should have been only halfway through a 10-year prison term in Idaho. Wow. I hate to say good for him, but good for him. Instead of, meaner, neener, I was able to evade you guys, or I was so much smarter, to actually say, like, you guys screwed up. I was right in your face, and you let this continue. He continues, Please, sir, I'd like an opportunity to tell you many things that could have stopped me. Maybe it could be used to stop other sex offenders, both violent and nonviolent. I also know what each child I molested could have done to prevent or stop my actions against them. 
it would be very easy to teach them what to do. Any child old enough to talk is old enough to learn what to do. It's too late for me. Others can be stopped and some may safely return to society. They need your help. Most of all, the kids need your help. If you would like to hear what else I have to say, please contact me. I'll answer any questions. I can either by mail, phone, in person, whatever. Let's use what I know to protect instead of hurt other children. I expect to receive the death penalty. Learn from me while you can. Thank you. On the topic of what Dodd thought kids could do to have stopped him, for him it was saying no. According to him, that didn't happen very often because kids are taught to listen to everything an adult tells them to not stir the pot, you know, shut down when something scary is happening. And I I don't necessarily believe that's the case for all offenders. But for for him, he thinks that would have been the case. He even went as far as to develop a coloring book for adults and children to help spread awareness of these bad people and how to stop these bad people from touching you, which is different. I've never heard of someone going to those lengths. Dodd also participated in a lot of interviews and they really answered a lot of questions, right? These are, you know, it was the media, but also psychiatrists and psychologists and people studying sex offenders. He taught us a lot because he was so open. He never held back, not once. And I mean, I'm surprised by that, which makes me appreciate him to an extent. Did his advocacy, if you call it that, did that ever present itself in what you read as remorse? Was he remorseful in a way? Well, some people don't believe his remorse. I personally do. I feel like he was a bit remorseful because of the lengths he went with that stuff. Like he didn't have to do that. He had, what, two and a half years left to his life. He didn't have to do that at all. Um, And people did say he he was religious and remorseful. And I don't know if that's true. Some people don't believe him. I don't ever buy that stuff. So it's almost like a Jeffrey Dahmer, like kind of the meek, apologetic man. But in his home is this like torturous hellscape. I also think it was an urge. Like he literally couldn't. He didn't have the tools to stop himself from doing it. Yeah. And prison made him stop and process everything. I was really taken aback with the, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but just how quick it was and just like, no, I've done it. I'm going to do it again in a week. I'm, you know, instead of like, I'm going to let it lie down and be quiet. He was escalating fast. It was just like, I have to do this. I think if he hadn't been caught, like he really would have been the worst offender. Uh, And and this was at a time where there were other killers out there. Uh, He could have blended in. Um, There weren't many targeting young children like him, but. Right. If he had tried, this is my other point. If he had tried, he could have got away with it. Now, here's the thing about him. I do not get the impression that he ever hid who he was. He really seemed to have gone through life hoping to get caught, and he never really did. And when he did, they didn't care. Yeah. I mean, he had years of therapy, and he and some he said only one of them ever put in a, a really good effort, but the police never did. It was never taken too seriously and either that's he was you know had white male privilege or maybe they didn't believe as victims but it was just never escalated and the one person that tried to with that one five-year sentence was like oh you can't because he didn't actually touch that little right I don't know it really stuck with me when he said police taught him he could molest children and get away with it I said yeah they 
they did. And we learned from it. Um, something I thought was also interesting, I, I guess I don't really know how we hire for sex abuse cases, but I found this stat. Okay, so this is the height of stranger danger in, right. the, in 1989. So there were seven investigators assigned to sex abuse in Vancouver. There were 600 cases that year. And of those, 104 were marked as likely child abuse. So that's 15 cases per person for that year. Does that seem like a lot to you? Or does that so seem... So 15 cases per officer per year? Mm-hmm. That's... Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know what the either. average case would be. I mean, that's a large Is case. Is a month load, long but... enough to investigate that? I don't think so. No. But anyway, because of this, things did improve in Washington on that front. I believe they formed a task force. They hired more people, yada, yada. But... I mean, this was one of a kind case and it boy, did it go fast from his escalation as a yeah. serial killer to admitting it to being hung, you know, like those things would never happen nowadays. No, I will say I'm, as you know, not a supporter of the death penalty. But when it does occur, it's nice when it's cases like this yeah. that definitely deserve it. I, I think the last few Washington executions were deserved. I, you know, right. as much as I, I hate to say it, there was no chance in rehabilitating any of these people. Right. Not and maybe if you got if Dodd had really gotten the help he needed as a 13 year old after the first few incidents. But by that time, it was his life. Right. I mean, full, full fledged addiction in such a different way than, you know, this isn't someone who's been using hardcore drugs for 15 years, which is a huge thing to overcome on its own. Right. But this is like part of his makeup or just like something in his mind. Yeah. And it's how do you undo that? I don't know, man. How do you how do you instill compassion in someone towards children? Like if that's not there, what can you do? Exactly. That's why I I'm the same way as much as I disagree with the executions at, at, to a certain extent. Like this yeah. is one where I'm like, yeah, that's about all there was. to. I mean, he even knew he knew. Right. That was the only thing you could do. Right. He was literally asking for it, uh, which a lot of people disagree with. But um, outside of his his uh, execution, it was a split. Kind of half the people outside were holding signs saying get rid of them wearing fake like ropes around their oh, neck right and then the other half was like no like this is against his rights like we should not we shouldn't hang people but it, it, it was legal Which, he chose it yeah and I, I i get that because like i you know as you listeners know i don't support it but it's also like if he's shown to be competent and he's confessed and he's choosing that and the da is fine with it there's nothing we can do you know if he's if he's mentally competent it's like what what's the argument i i tend to I agree. don't really understand and that and back then it wasn't as ex expensive as it is now someone on death row now it's millions of dollars yeah. whereas um lifetime imprisonment is far less but back then it went so fast you didn't have to pay for them to be on death row long yeah it was what a year yeah two years two and a half years um, now, you know, I mentioned that he's really different from other serial killers in a lot of ways, but one way that he was similar is he hung around that first scene. So remember how I said Dodd saw yeah, Danny running down watch. the hill? Yeah. Well, there was an article a couple of years later where the very first search and rescue person got on scene when they went to go look for Cole. Uh-huh. 
He said he saw a man in a yellow pinto and he made eye contact with him and he just got a really bad feeling. And I'm like, how long was he there? How long was he sitting there? Or did he leave and come back? And you hear about that, like when people say like to search the crime scene and search through the search parties and but I don't think those that, things where it's you know that they're still at the crime mm-hmm. I don't think that information ever got out though because had his car was pretty distinctive like yeah. p- pintos were popular but a yellow pinto station yeah. wagon with wood paneling is pretty specific. specific and I feel like if they had circulated that mm-hmm. it may have helped but it was a gut feeling they had no proof you know but and then also I was surprised at all the people that came forward after they found Lee's body. So once they found Lee and started putting that in the media, uh, a woman came forward and claimed to have seen Lee on the street walking with a man like outside a grocery store. A neighbor saw a small blonde boy going into Dodd's home with him. And his other tenant that rented a room in the same house heard voices in Dodd's room walked down the hall, opened the door, and saw what he thought was an eight-year-old sitting at the table coloring, wearing one of Dodd's shirts. And Dodd said, oh, this is my sister's son. I mean, like, hello, people. Yeah. (laughs) Had you called that in earlier, could he? I don't know if he could have been saved. But I mean, that's hard, too, because it's like if you just have a roommate and maybe you're not super close, it's like, oh, your nephew's over. Okay. And you, him, you know, you're yeah, not going to be like, true. oh, you're probably torturing him. Now, for the days woman, on the woman on the street, though, she thought it might be Lee. And maybe she did call. I don't know how long it would take that information to like make its way to the right people. But I mean, it's just kind of scary to think how many people saw him. And here's the other thing. He took him out in public once he got to Vancouver. People in Vancouver were aware a little boy was abducted in Portland. We are divided by a river, guys. It is not that far away. Oh, I don't know. It's frustrating. But I mean, he kept him alive for a day, barely a day. Um, So I don't know if anything would have helped, but it's really hard to read those things after the fact. I feel like he has a good point saying that teaching kids when they're young is good because not just the stranger danger, which I know kind of has its own connotations nowadays because it's like, well, it's actually more often the people that you know. Oh, that yeah. It's more you. about like these are the places people shouldn't be. Exactly. Touching. And so it's like besides that, it's the conversations that we're having now to give kids that kind of space yep. to talk about that stuff, because it's not just that he was caught over and over and given these light sentences or nothing was pieced together that he had this rap sheet. But the fact that all of those kids through all of those years, no one felt like they could come forward or I if know. they did, it wasn't heard. Well, and so it's he like, was targeting specific kids too, right. single moms who had to work a lot. Kids that maybe like him didn't understand sexuality or what was inappropriate. Right. And that's the thing where it's like if, if we've got this monster saying if the kids had known. And I think that is a good point. And that's not to say, oh, it falls on the kids. No, oh my God, no. no. And it doesn't fall on the single mom who's busy working trying to put food on the table. But it's if the if the moms and the kids have that space to know that you can say anything and this is what's not okay. And and if you feel this way, if you feel scared, if you feel guilty, if you feel anything, you come talk to me and we figure it out. You know, and and I feel like that's getting there. I know with my niece and nephew, I'm all the time saying you can always tell me anything just so that exists somewhere for them. 
And I think that that has shifted significantly since this time. I agree. So now those things can be caught sooner. Does that mean that they're going to get the harsher sentences? We don't always see that, but at least it's like, Get the people on the radar. Yeah, but with that change, other things have changed where grooming happens online and not yeah. necessarily from the creepy guy at the laundry room right. at the apartment. Um, so we, we have other things to look for. But open communication, that's never a bad thing right. with a kid. And shit still happens. I literally last week took my niece and nephew, five years old and three years old, and we walked the quarter mile down to our local park that's been, it's it's literally a small park with a playground thing in a little wooded area that overlooks a creek. And as we were walking up, this woman comes screaming up to us, don't go in there, don't go back there, you can't, don't be here. And I'm just like, what? And I'm also like, damn it, not in front of the kids. Like, no, what is happening? And then this teenager comes up and he's like, the mom is over there with the daughter and she was in the woods. And, and I guess this teenage girl, like 13 years old or so. And this isn't like a wooded area. This is a chunk of area that's like a bunch of trees that's fenced off. It's not very big. You just, it's one little trail that loops around a, like a hundred feet. It's very small. And some man dressed all in black hopped out and grabbed her and tried to take her or tried about to that. assault her. And she was able to get away. Hopefully she had some, you know, good self-defense or just screamed or whatever it was. And she escaped and, he hopped the fence, which then leads down to the creek, which leads to the freeway, which leads to who knows where this person came from. And it's just like. And with that, there was an attempted abduction in Wilsonville and Lake Oswego. Yes. So they think it could be the same person. So it's just like and, and you know, we had a, I had to have the talk with the kids because we were, you know, they, they had questions and and they they weren't scared. But it was just a conversation about. That's why you don't go places by yourself. Make sure you have friends with you. You know, don't walk anywhere you don't feel safe and just run and fight. And if anyone touches you that you don't want touching it, you know. So it, it's it's still an everyday thing, unfortunately. Yeah. And when you hear something coming from this hideous monster, I mean, this f- truly is someone that is broken, monstrous, awful. This isn't, you know, so often we hear people committing these horrible crimes and it's like oh the same thing always happened to them or they were they were on drugs or they had brain damage or something happened you know you can almost kind of like uh put a reasoning to it and this is just this person became fixated on that flat out monster horrible person but if we can learn from him then it's like then it's not all for naught you know it, it wasn't completely a loss it wasn't just to cause pain and disaster. It's like maybe that information can help protect at least one kid from having that happen to them. For today's case, I read Driven to Kill by Gary C. King, and per usual, Gary's books are chock full of info and despite the incredibly dark content, easy to read. There's a link to the book on our website under the tab Murder Reads. He left the city of Wichita, Kansas. Oops. He left the city of Wichita, Kansas, anxious with fear. Already.
Little did he know that while he may be able to avoid, avoid, <laughs> people were fixated on stranger danger, hunting monsters, and head. <laughs> As he walked up the hill of Northeast Anderson Road, and oh, fuck you. Duh, I'm a ding dong. Roughly a hundred yards away. Yars? Yar! Well, how long is a pirate football field? A hundred yards. Sketch artist. And I'm not done with the sentence. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Emily. Within a half of an hour of. Is that right? The police immediately went to work. They even brought in two dog hander handers. Ooh, what's a dog hander? I want one. There were absolutely no similarities in the case. Cases. In the cases. <laughs> <laughs> Spurred by the fact that it was a possible... Oh, my God. Just read the fucking sentence, Emily. So maybe they did think there was a link, but they didn't want to worry the... Worry the Republic. <laughs> We shan't worry the Republic. Oh, that paragraph's done. That's not what I wrote. <laughs> Who knew an evening with Rick Moranis would change everything? In Moranis. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. I like anus. Oh. During his... During his... Came time to evaluate him for another case. Uh, when it... Oh, my God. <laughs> On June 13th, 1989. <laughs> when? And I will get some water to lubricate my whistle. Police arrived at the theater to place him under arrest and take the rest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm making fun of myself. We're <laughs> saying a word. We're going to arrest him. <laughs> On a. Nope. <laughs> it's June. Ha <laughs> Yay. Nothing. Everything's fine. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>